my name is Amir Dukic. I am the CEO and co-founder of Rabu. At Rabu, we help real estate investors find, buy, and operate short-term rentals throughout the United States through data tools and then also through a property management service. Incredibly excited for today uh, because we have Taylor Jones joining us with TechFester. Taylor is one of the best short-term rental investors I've ever met, and his team at TechFester are doing some great things. So excited to have him on today and uh, share his story or have him share his story with you guys. Real quick, before we get started, just a couple of quick housekeeping uh, points. Besides myself and, and Taylor, you'll notice Chris and Nicole from the Rabu team uh, kind of joining the podcast and manning the, the chat. Uh, please feel free to engage with us there. Uh, so we have in the chat, that is, we have about 20 to 30 minutes of questions that, uh, that Taylor and I have pre-planned, but we'd love to answer any questions you guys have. Uh, so we've reserved some time at the end of this podcast uh, to answer your questions. You already have a few that have come in from Twitter, but please send questions uh, that you have uh, for Taylor or myself uh, in the chat, and we'll aggregate those towards the end and, and answer those questions. With that being said, Taylor, um, incredibly excited to have you joining us today. Welcome. Thanks, I'm very excited. Um, to get started, can you please just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your portfolio, and then TechBester? Yeah. Uh, my name is Sailor, uh, lifelong sales guy, got into real estate when COVID hit. Uh, me and my wife uh, started buying short-term rentals, always had the itch for real estate, wasn't sure how I wanted to get in. And as a consumer of the platform, you know, me and my wife have actually stayed in Airbnb since 2015. So I've been a consumer since, you know, some of the early days of the platform. We love to travel. Um, I also love to cook. So having a kitchen, you know, yes, price weighs into it, but I think... Having the ability to cook meals uh, as somebody who does enjoy uh, cooking was a huge advantage over hotels. So we've always been a consumer. And during COVID, I kind of had that moment of, let me explore the other side of being a host and what the numbers look like. I've never really looked into it. Numbers looked good. Obviously, this was pre-COVID. Uh, things were, you know, everything looked great back then. And sure so did. we sco scooped up one. Uh, and then once I got one, it got super addicting, got two um, and, and continued to grow. And then um, in January of 21, um, CEO from TechFester reached out um, to me and said, hey, uh, we're building our team. We have a short-term real investment portfolio that we're building, allow investors to you know, invest passively in short-term rentals as a whole. And I got on board. I run our acquisitions team, which is kind of a great fit as somebody who's a washed up baseball guy where stats numbers mm -hmm. is everything. Um, so it's kind of the same thing, you know, when you apply that over into short-term rentals is uh, a lot of underwriting comps, data numbers. So to me, this is just a natural fit for, you know, what I've done my whole life, um, but applying it here into short-term rentals and real estate as a whole. Awesome. Love that story. Love the background, uh, real quick on the tech, tech piece. And I'm not even sure that you know this, but, uh, I'm incredibly impressed by the team. I think, you know, that part, but I actually met some of the original founders way back in the day. Uh, one of your co-founders, Sabrina, um, before she had joined uh, TechBester, um, she was, uh, I think she had just left Apple, if I recall correctly, uh, and was looking at some short-term rental opportunities, realized there was an opportunity there. She was she was playing around with some deals, exploring some deals, I think in Arizona, and she had reached out to us just to see, you know, if you, had, if you could help her acquire some assets. Uh, so we were talking to her and she was, again, kind of na navigating the space, trying to figure out where she wants to land. And in one call that I had with her, she was raving about a meeting she had the prior week. She had flown out to LA to meet with 
Steve, not the other co-founder, uh, they met in LA, had a great whiteboard session, as I recall, realized that they had the same vision, that they had complementary skill sets, um, and they they got together and started the company. And it's incredibly impressive to see what you guys have built over the last now 18 months. Um, how much money have you guys raised from LPs today? Uh, over 42 to 45 million now. So we'll get wow. updates from our CFO. So we'll be Depending on today's update, we'll be in the 42 plus million range. Amazing. And how many properties have you purchased in that time period? Um, so between what's in the pipeline, what's live and what's being renovated, we're approaching a hundred uh, short-term rentals and we're continuing to buy. I, I can even tell you uh, since, since I lead the acquisitions, like just this past weekend alone, we put five deals under contract. So I was busy working uh, Saturday, Sunday. So the, the, the pro and the con to uh, acquisitions is the MLS never closes. There is no right. such thing as a nine to five. That's a kind of a good, funny joke in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, we're always scaling, continue to acquire cash flowing short-term rentals um, and add them to our portfolio. That's amazing. And uh, especially if you think about the day back to 2021 is when I met Sabrina uh, and then Steve and obviously you, you didn't have any properties back then. And then, you know, 18 plus months later, you're almost at a hundred all acquired. Um, that's amazing. Uh, it's also proved that a lot can be done in a short amount of time. So uh, congrats to you and your team. And that's why we believe so highly of you guys. It's, it's just in, incredibly impressive what you guys have done there. No, thank you. We've uh, we've really enjoyed, you know, collaborating with you guys and continuing to push the, the asset class and the space forward as a whole. Yeah, no, I appreciate that as well. Uh, I also love you a little bit about your story and how you actually learned about short-term rentals and how you got started and how you taught yourself what a good property is. Can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Because I think if I remember correctly, you spend a lot of time on YouTube. Is that right? Just learning yeah. that way? Yeah. So, you know, the pro and the con to the sales job was, you know, you, you get to go control your own income. You know, I've been hundred percent commission for eight years in the sales world and um, had a client facing sales job. And when they cut you know, client facing opportunities in March, April, and May during COVID, I wasn't fired, but we weren't allowed to go get new sales contracts, which in essence halted my income, halted everything. Right. And that was kind of my oh no moment. And at that point, need to figure out what I wanted to do. Always had the itch for real estate, looked at wholesaling, looked at flipping, looked at getting my broker's license, looked at multifamily. And then you naturally came across short-term rentals. Like I said, have been a consumer of the product uh, since 2015. And started watching YouTube videos of, you know, some great people um, that were putting out content back then. Um, it was a little less prevalent um, as compared to today's day and age, but um, I just consumed it, absorbed. And the unfortunate, but also fortunate part was I had all the time in the world because I wasn't working um, temporarily. I could consume content hours upon hours every day. Um, I ended up buying some books and reading a ton about the space um, and everything that was produced. Uh, you know, bigger pockets, uh, blog posts, anything I get my hands on, gather as many inputs as possible. And now I can start making good decisions, you know, via outputs. Um, and at some point you just got to jump in. I think that's the biggest issue I see with people today is they overanalyze, try to overlearn. And I'll tell you, you'll never know everything about the space until you start operating. And even though I studied and, and did all this stuff for three, four months straight, I probably learned more in the first three to four weeks of operating than I did in that entire three, four months of studying. And that's my biggest uh, advice to people is at some point, you know, you, you just, you got to learn to swim. You, you got to jump in, um, know enough that you don't drown. Obviously you don't want to lose money or, or make a bad mistake. So that's what I tell people is have enough of a base that you don't 
uh, fall apart, drown when you jump in the pool, but you don't got to be Michael Phelps right out of the gate. And I think that's the problem a lot of people have is they, they feel like they need to learn everything and there's no way to do it until you truly get in the space and own properties. I love that. Uh, and we live by that same mantra is take, take steps, take baby steps. You don't need to have the perfect business plan. You don't need to have everything figured out. You just need to feel comfortable enough to know that you're headed in the right direction and then take those steps mm -hmm. and then kind of see what happens after you take those baby steps, right? Do you have to turn left? Do you have to turn right? You might, you have to turn around, right? Do you have to abandon path altogether? Uh, I think it's so incredibly important to take those, those steps um, because otherwise you're just always kind of uh, left with the what if game. What if I do this? What if you do that? There's nothing like actually forcing yourself to do it. So hundred uh, percent agree there. Um, just real quick again, for everyone that's attended or has joined, uh, we'd love for you guys to send us questions. Please use the chat feature. Um, Taylor and I will uh, answer questions at the end of this podcast. So please send those questions our, our way. We'd love to keep that, keep everything as engaged as possible. Um, going back to your to your head of acquisitions role at Techvester, can you explain exactly what that is and kind of what your day to day looks like? Yeah, certainly. So you know, my day to day is to underwrite properties that we want to potentially acquire um, using different data sources that we have. <clears throat> so you know, we're going to explore opportunities to buy all across the U.S. We obviously have target markets that we really like that we're going after, and so for us, it's just a matter of really looking at the data, what makes sense to buy. And, you know, once we figure that out, so we've identified a property, uh, we'll have local partners, you know, realtors, agents in the towns, uh, we'll get video walkthroughs, understand, you know, photos can be deceiving. Uh, you want to understand spatial awareness, things that you can't from boots on the ground. Um, so we'll get those videos back. We'll either confirm, yes, we do like this property, uh, just the same as we saw the photos or, oh my gosh, uh, the video showed something that's pretty bad and we don't want to go after it. But assuming we get it confirmed, we'll go in and submit our offer. Uh, once our offer is submitted, we'll go through the, the real estate transactions. We'll close on it. Um, at that point, it obviously is leaving, you know, my department and heads to the rest of our team, you know, where we go into everything from renovations to design to furnishing into actually managing and operating themselves. But, you know, to me, my day-to-day -day is truly looking at listings, um, seeing what fits based on the data, looking at trends, um, you know, kind of similar to, you know, when I started out um, by myself was, gather as many inputs as possible. So to me, it's consuming all of that information to make the best informed decision possible. You know, for us, that's what we want to do is we can't control the greater macro environment. I can't control interest rates. I can't control if we're on World War III. You know, the only thing I can control is what is the best available cash flowing short-term rental in front of me today that I can buy, whether rates are 1% or 10%, you know, whether we have to do you know, 80 LTV or, or 100%, you know, um, you know, and, and buy all cash, like, we're going to figure it out. But, you know, ultimately, we're going to control what we can control. And that's what's right in front of us. So true. It's always incredibly important to only control what you can control, uh, you know, across all things of life. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredibly true. Uh, and then you learn from it. Speaking of that, uh, what was your investment strategy when you first got started? And, and how has it evolved over time? Is it still the same? Or have you heard, learned some hard lessons and kind of adjusted uh, adjusted to those. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you could see with the trends with COVID is, um, you know, early on, um, those escape destinations, the mountain getaways absolutely surged, um, downtown metropolitans got absolutely crushed, um, you know, in the heart of COVID. Um, what we've kind of seen is a pendulum swing back the other way. So downtown metropolitans, you know, they, they say are back and, you know, people who maybe already took that trip to the Smokies, 
took that trip to, you know, hey, we escaped LA and went to Joshua Tree or whatever it might be. Most people aren't doubling up their vacations, doing the same one the next year. So they're going to go try something new. So for us, you know, we have to follow the traveling trends and, you know, whatever that might be and just continue to buy and have exposure. You know, for us, because there is so many different opportunities, we do have to stay diverse, which is why we own, you know, mountain cabins, we own beach cottages, we own lake properties, and we own downtown metropolitan. So we own kind of, you could argue the four categories or types of products you could consume just to stay diversified, you know, across that with everything going on in the space, travel trends, you know, we'll buy one bedrooms when the data says, and we'll buy six bedrooms when the data says. So for us, owning a diverse, um, you know, portfolio allows us to continue to hedge, um, you know, amongst traveling trends, driving revenue, and what's the best available thing to purchase. Yeah, makes complete sense. It's, yeah, uh, diversification and making sure that uh, you can uh, uh, you can accommodate any kind of need. Speaking of that need, I'm sure you guys uh, also do, and I think I saw this on Twitter the other day, you guys also try to drive some 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 longer term state as well if that's what's what's necessary right is that is that the case or are you guys strictly focused on the uh you know a few days at a time type rental or are you looking at midterms as well no so we are strictly short-term rentals uh we've had a couple midterm rentals you know and midterm rentals being you know 30 to 180 days that that you know one month to six months i think anything north of six months is considered a long-term rental uh, we are very focused on short-term rentals only. We've had a couple fall on our lap. The biggest one that I did put out on Twitter was a 45-day booking for over 26 grand. If somebody's going to come to us and say, hey, I'll pay you $5.95 a night for the next six weeks, yes, we're going to take it. Even though it doesn't align with our core strategy of you know, two, three, four, five-night bookings, that's our bread and butter that we know how to execute on. When those do fall on our laps, we will absolutely take them. So uh, definitely had to tweet that out. That was a little bit of a shocker uh, to the system, but you know, I always say is when you, when you continue to put your head down and do things right, sometimes, you know, good things fall in your lap. And that's kind of what we found there was, hey, we didn't intend for this to be a, a midterm rental opportunity. It was a brand new property that launched. Obviously, we had the next six weeks open and sure as could be somebody snatched it up. So a uh, really good yeah. opportunity when that's available. Yeah, it makes complete sense. So it's more being optimistic there than actually buying something with the true kind of strategy of allowing monthly monthly tenants. Um makes sense. And I think that kind of goes back to the type of strategy that you as an investor have. We have a lot of investors that we work with that only buy assets that they're looking primarily to fill with those midterm rentals. And then they fill gap nights with the daily space, but their strategy is more in the midterm. Um, but you know, there's multiple ways to succeed in the space, which I think is a great thing about this asset class. It can still serve multiple purposes, right? Daily, weekly, monthly, and even annual states. We've seen some of those, especially with some corporate partners. So Really interesting uh, to see how you guys are approaching it. Um, next question on my end, uh, what is kind of the ultimate deciding factor for you guys on where to invest um, and what specific properties to invest in? I'm sure you guys have a buy box, right? Yeah, so every market's gonna get a different buy box. Uh, for us, it starts with regulation risk, number one. You know, is it legal? Um, we can't operate in gray areas, gray spaces. Oh, it's 50-50 or oh, there's you know, it's, it's unknown what the regulations are, you know, everything starts with regulation. It's got to be legal. Um, there's risks that uh, an individual one-off investor might be able to take, but, you know, us at the scale and, and how we're operating, um, you know, we just can't do this. We start with regulation. Uh, then because we plan on operating these assets for the next, you know, five plus years, it's what does the next five years look like? Is this a place that's trending up or is it maybe trending down? And so we want to look and just kind of see travel, travel demand um, opportunity, is this an, an emerging 
short-term rental market or is this an established one like say the Smokies or Disney that's been around since the 70s or 80s? Um, you know, we, we do have a blend in our portfolio. Obviously, emerging markets, they can definitely drive more yield. They come with more risk that, you know, hey, demand could fall off um, versus, you know, a more established market where there's really not as much upside because everybody has entered that space. However, you don't have to worry about demand falling off. So for us, we'll just continue to, to build a blend of assets together um, to hedge that risk, but it allows us to get exposure to multiple things. So for us, we're going to look at the data uh, for that area and we're going to find what is the best product to buy. So in some markets, the data might tell you, go buy one or two bedrooms, go small. Mm -hmm. And in some markets, the data might tell you, hey, go big, buy five or six. And so for us, we're just going to stay disciplined to the numbers and what they tell us. At the same token, just because we've identified a good place to buy, now you got to figure out where is the best place to buy. Is more revenue made on the north side of town, the east side, the south side, or the west side? Which neighborhoods have the most revenue? Is it because it's close to a certain amenity in town? Is it because it's close to the actual town itself? Or is it a completely different factor that we're not taking in? So for us, every new city that we look at is going to have a different buy box and different things that matter. Um, and so for us, it's just following whatever the data tells us and just execute that plan. So yeah, we will build a buy box for every market we go into. And that will obviously change based on the market that it is. I love that. And we're getting a lot of questions coming in. A couple of them are regulation related. And yeah, I know you mentioned that is the first thing that you look at. Taylor, so let me ask those now, because uh, I think it's a good kind of uh, handoff there. Um, obviously, you mentioned you guys uh, mitigate <coughs> regulation risk by, by doing the research to make sure that uh, short-term rentals are legal there. Um, how, how do you go about doing that? What's your typical process to understand regulations of the market? Yeah, uh, I mean, you definitely, uh, you, you want to start with a Google search. The The most common way to typically find regulations, what we found is city. So, you know, let's just say, you know, um, you know, um, Gatlinburg and then short-term rental permit. So city and then short-term rental permit. The reason with that is that's typically going to take you to the city's permit link or permit application. And they're going to typically have the rules there. Um, another thing to do is to actually call the zoning and permit office as well. What's great is some communities are really good. They have fine. It's very easy. Others, we are dealing with the government at the end of the day. It's very awful. It's very tough to navigate. And so getting on the phone um, and making sure there's a clear understanding um, is, is how you have to, to hedge it as a backup if there's not that clear, you know, forefront information on the front end. So for us, um, typically sit, insert city, short-term rental permit will get you right to that link. Um, you'll go in, read the rules, read the regs. Uh, you could search articles. So that's kind of another great thing is you can see on the articles page, is there a new proposed change in the works? Oh, we have this new city mm -hmm. vote coming up. Those are things you want to stay afloat on. I think what's great about um, you know being a part on Twitter is you can see a lot of different things across the US. I also think uh, Facebook groups, I try to join as many Airbnb Facebook groups People will post things that they're hearing. Oh, I'm hearing this new regulation in Big Bear or Joshua Tree or wherever. And so just constantly staying afloat in, in the ever-changing environment of regulations is super critical. So, you know, Google search is the way to start. Uh, social is the way to continue to stay ongoing with your knowledge base. Yeah, I think 100% agree with that. I think the biggest opportunity there is to call the city themselves, right? And try to talk to somebody. You know, that can be painful, uh, but that is definitely one of the better opportunities to get get down kind of to the brass tacks. 
There are some providers out there that will do this for you. Some third-party solutions. Brevity is one of them that as part of the underwriting they'll do for you. They'll actually do a deep dive into the regulatory risk. So if you want somebody else to do that, that's an interesting path to go down. Revedy.com, R-E-V-E-D-Y.com. They'll do that for you. Uh, but 100% um, on, on point. Would you guys ever buy anything where you know uh, there appears to be a, a, a decent risk of short-term rentals being fully banned, even if there's like a, a existing potential, like a grandfather clause, or if you see any kind of chatter about short-term rental regulations, um, do you guys just kind of take a step back and say, okay, this is not for us? Yeah, I mean, we definitely take a step back. The place, you know, based on what we're building, we can't take on those risks. Again, there's risks that an individual one-off buyer can maybe take. Um, traditionally, yes, most cities do apply a grandfather. Um, so again, and, you know, they could pay out for you as an individual for us because of what's at stake and the scale that we're building at. We just can't take on those risks, uh, unfortunately. So there is parts of the country that, you know, we aren't buying in, uh, but you as an individual consumer or, you know, you know, me personally would go after. Um, and it's just because, you know, it's my capital and it's my investment thesis for who I am as a person versus what we're building, you know, with our firm. So, um, yeah, those are things we have to navigate. But for us, uh, we can't take on that inherent risk. Yeah, absolutely. But if there are regulations in place that are um, that that are you know legit in the sense that they do a lot of short-term rentals, but you have to get a permit, you have to do X, Y, and Z, that's not a deal breaker for you guys. You just want to make sure that your property kind of checks the box uh, and is able to be operated legally. Is that is that fair? Yeah, say? that's fair. I, I would say the two simplest ways to to really look at a city is you know. A, the permit process, can you apply, get a permit, and, and whether it's, you know, hey, there's unlimited, or hey, there's a cap of 2,000, or whatever it is, but yes, there's a path to get a permit, that obviously tells you, hey, they've taken a stance on short-term rentals. Second is, are they applying a, a lodging or occupancy tax? Um, mm -hmm. You know, to me, you look at, if the government's going to start taxing it, they, you know, it's regulated, and it's going to be around to stay. Um, you know, if the government's making two, three, four, five million dollars a year in lodging taxes, um, so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, small little town, Blue Ridge, Georgia. I know a lot of people invested there. I personally own there. Um, there's 20,000 residents. Uh, the lodging taxes last year they collected was over five and a half million dollars from short-term rentals. One of the largest line items on the government's P&L. So you let yep. me know if you ever think the government's going to give up five and a half million dollars of gravy train money. And then I'll tell you, is it risky to invest in a place like Blue Ridge, Georgia? So it's actually good when a municipality implies a lodging tax or an occupancy tax. That means it's probably here to stay for long term because they want that money. And, you know, as you can assess from the government, they're rarely ever going to give that money up. Yeah. Uh, so on the same page there, I think the, the big thing here that people need to notice or realize is that we're likely going to see more short-term rental regulation going forward, but not bans. Regulation in the sense that the city is just establishing rules and guidelines under which to operate um, because for that exact reason you just mentioned, there's too much revenue to be generated out of them, of tourism tax or whatever else may be the case. So it's definitely not going anywhere. Uh, I think you'll see more regulations um, on how to do it properly, which is probably good for the business as well, right? Because it allows people to uh, operate short-term rentals the way they should be operated, not kind of a free-for-all where everybody can do whatever they want to. That kind of usually leads to the issues that you hear, the horror stories that you hear about parties and shootings and things of that nature is just because people aren't being responsible in the way they host. So uh, 100% on, on the same page there. Um, let's talk about markets a little bit. Um, 
what are some kind of, uh, how do you guys go about identifying a market? And then what are some markets that you're currently excited about? Yeah, I mean, how do we identify a market is you got to start and look at the revenue being generated in that town. So if the average three bedroom is generating a hundred grand, that's great. If homes cost a million dollars to buy, it doesn't make any sense. If homes cost 400 grand to buy, well, now it's something worth diving into. So for us, you know, because we've operated short-term rentals and I talk about this a lot on Twitter, your operating expense, at the end of the day, these are hospitality businesses wrapped in single family homes or wrapped in real estate. I don't care if you buy it for a hundred K or a million to actually operate as a short-term rental will cost relatively the same, you know, percentage uh, for your operating expenses. So for me, I know that if I have to pay a million dollars for it because of debt, that's going to be higher. I don't know that I have enough revenue to support that after all my expenses. So for us, we always look at, I always call it as the price to revenue ratio. And that's pretty much a basic formula of gross revenue divided by purchase price. And we have certain thresholds depending on markets that that minimum needs to hit. Because I can tell you if I underwrite a deal, like in today's market across the board, a 10% price to revenue ratio is, is not going to work. What I mean by that is a hundred grand in revenue and a million dollar purchase price. I can tell you that if I go underwrite that deal and we assume, you know, 20% down, um, utilities, uh, operating costs, maintenance, property management, et cetera, I can tell you there's going to be virtually no money left. Um, and even if you get into that 11, 12, 13% price to revenue ratio, it's going to get tight. Um, now, obviously, if you have access to cheaper debt, if you're doing creative financing or sub two, yes, there's other ways to skin the cat. But speaking broadly on just putting a standard 20, 25, 30% down investment loan and going in at today's market rates, you need to have enough of a spread so that there's yield left over at the end of the day. Um, so for us, we're going to establish and know what our price to revenue ratio is for that town. Depending on what market though, if you look at a place like Texas where property taxes are higher, that's an expense that isn't going to translate to say North Carolina where you live, where they reassess right. taxes once every eight years and they're traditionally very low. So our buying box, our price to revenue ratio in Texas is going to actually be higher than it is in North Carolina. You know, we might take a 17% price to revenue ratio in North Carolina, but we might need a 20 or 21 in Texas just because of that. I'm here in Florida, love it. One downfall we have is insurance. So right. same thing in Florida, I can't buy a 15% price to revenue ratio deal because insurance will eat me alive. So those are things you have to understand when investing in your local market is what expenses are above the norm. Insurance and taxes are two that you can't control. If I'm the best short-term rental operator in the country, it does not matter uh, if I can't control insurance costs because those could go up 20, 30% and run away from me. And it doesn't matter how lean of an operator I am, I'm going to crush my margin. So those are things you need to figure out when you're investing, you know, New York, California, traditionally high tax states, take those into your underrating so that you can dissect that and figure out what your price to revenue ratio is. That will allow you to underwrite and look at deals super quick. You know, to me, if it doesn't meet a minimum threshold, I won't even look at it. So that's how we're able to underwrite hundreds of deals a day is because everything at the end of the day will boil down to your price versus revenue ratio. And so we stay very disciplined to those ratios. And if we find something that hits it, then we'll deep dive it with a, with a hard underwriting. Great. Discipline. That's the key word right there. You have to figure out what your discipline is, have to figure out what your buy box is and then execute against it. Um, sticking to the markets, what, what's your opinion on investing in you know what they call oversaturated markets? 
So, uh, you know, it might, might be a hot take, but, you know, I would say is there is no, um, every market is investable in the U.S. today. And, you know, when I say that, what I mean is there is certain properties, certain bedroom counts, certain styles that despite something being quote unquote saturated, you can find a way to win. It might not be uh, easy. It might not be pretty, but there is a kind of product in a certain part of town that uh, will allow you to succeed and win. The key is figuring that out. You know, for us, you know, when you want to see what the best performing properties are in a given market, there's a bunch of different tools you can use. So, you know, you could go to Rabu and look at, you know, performing properties. You can go to AirDNA. They have a top properties tab and you can filter by bedrooms. You can also simply just do a blind search on Airbnb and go in. And typically all the listings showing up on the first page are going to be top performing properties. Now, yes, they'll promote new properties. So you want to look for ones with reviews, but ultimately go look at what those properties are. Go look at what they have in common. If they're all oceanfront, well, then that tells you you probably need oceanfront to exactly. win. And yep. then if you're five blocks off, it's going to be a struggle unless you get it for a really good price where it still makes sense. You know, if every single first page has a mountain view, then that's going to carry weight. If you can still buy the wooded lot, stare at the trees, then you know that's a huge advantage that you don't need to overpay for a mountain view lot because there's plenty of homes that stare at the trees that are still performing well on Airbnb and VRBO. So you need to take all those into account to assess what is the best thing to buy. What does it look like? Um, is it one beds? Is it 10 beds? Whatever it is, but go start looking at the data and consuming it and it'll point you in the right direction to figure out what to buy. Yeah, saturation really means that demand is there. People provide, are providing supply. Uh, and now the question is, what's the right supply? And how do you set that supply up? Um, you know, is it just a, another short-term rental there? You're likely not going to see results there. Or is it something that stands out and has some amenities, some views, some whatever else the ca case may be to actually made, make it perform to, to the highest possible revenue uh, revenue that there is in the market? That's, that's so true. Um, speaking of that, um, kind of let's jump into some of the amenities that you guys put into your properties. Can you go over those quickly and kind of tell us why you go above and beyond when it comes to making sure that you have unique amenities in your assets? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, at the end of the day, put yourself in the, in the, you know, uh, place of a traveler. If I have two Airbnb listings pulled up and I'm considering booking as traveler, I'm like, cool, this is a three, two with a pool. This one's a three, two with a pool. This one has a fire pit. This one does not. They're both relatively same price point. You know, naturally you're going to pick the one there. So a term I always use is we're going to out amenity the other comps in there, meaning we're going to have stuff that they don't. And, you know, for us, maybe we've identified that it is a three, two with a pool, but okay, that just gets you in the ballpark. Now what's going to make you win is fire pit. Maybe you need a hot tub. Maybe you need miniature golf. Maybe you need cornhole. Maybe you need an outdoor bowling alley. Maybe you need a beach volleyball net. Maybe you need a, you know, a basketball court in the backyard. Whatever the space has to, to give you and whatever the demand is you want to do, we're pretty fortunate in that we can also look across the country, see what's working in one market, and then pull it or try it out in another market. Exam example I'll give you is movie theaters in the Smoky Mountains. You know, that used to be an emerging amenity. It was like, oh man, they have an indoor movie theater. Now I bet you 30, 40, maybe 50% of all cabins in the Smokies have a movie theater. It doesn't wow. differentiate you. But yep. if you go to another popular cabin market, which is Blue Ridge, where, where we own, we actually converted our garage into a movie theater at me and my wife's Airbnb. And the reason being is 
under 2% of all listings had a movie theater in Blue Ridge. And I'm saying this now, everybody on the chat's going to go out of movie theater. <laughs> but we took what is a popular amenity in another cabin market. I'm like, man, if it can work in Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, why won't it work in Blue Ridge? And sure as hell, we have top performing properties. And it's not only because of that, you know, it's amongst other things, but, you know, we'll take that same analogy though. And we'll try that out with other things like, you know, adding those in because we see it works in one market across the country. Let's go pull it and try it. And because we have a large portfolio, once we see that it works, we're now the first to the market or an early adapter. And then we can go add those amenities and go all in. And it gives us such a head start. Yes, people will try to catch us a year from now, two years now. But the good news is we're already adding more amenities to stand out and we've already built up more reviews. We have more traction. Our listing's still going to get booked even though we have the same amenities. How do you, I love that. How do you try to calculate the ROI that you get out of adding these um, amenities, especially if you can't find good comps? I guess what you guys do is just look at how they make, how they, how those amenities outperforming other markets and just attract and add that basically similar ROI to, to the market you're adding into. Is that yeah, the best way yeah. to think about it? You can start with a similar ROI. You can also look as most likely we're not the very first one on a mini. That would mm. be very rare. You know, there might be, like I said, 1%, 2%. It's I'm going to go look at how far above the average performing property, these top performers. So again, let's just go back to the movie theater example, the two or three people that do have movie theaters in Blue Ridge, you know, how much more revenue are they driving than the norm? 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%. I'm going to kind of apply a similar factor to that. It's the Mm -hmm. same as right now, indoor swimming pools are catching on. You know, that's like the new emerging amenity in in the Smokies. Well, I I started to wonder is what if somebody started building swimming pools in Blue Ridge? Are you going to get that same, you know, there's there's arguably between a 30 and 50% revenue difference in the Smokies of having a pool versus not. So can you get that same premium in Blue Ridge by having a pool? I don't know. We haven't tried that. And I haven't seen too many others. I've seen two or three listings that have swimming pools. And again, it's amenity nobody else has. So you can only apply what you've seen in other markets and then kind of start figuring it out with your own data and your own you know, properties as you grow. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so we've talked about markets. We've talked about um, amenities. Uh, I think this all kind of ties back into uh, a phenomenon that you'll see online, especially on the social channels called Airbnb bust. What's 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 your take on it and how does an investor, you know, minimize that Airbnb bust um, uh, risk with their operations and strategy? Yes, certainly. You know, what, I, what the joke I always make is if you have a three, two vinyl siding home in the middle of flyover country, America, like, yes, it, it will be tough to stand out. You will get eviscerated. Your property won't book. Um, you know, that worked 2019, 2020, you could just list a plain three, two vinyl siding home in middle America, nowhere, and you would get bookings. But with the way things are now that three, two vinyl siding home, you need to add a fire pit. You need to add a hot tub. You need to add a cornhole area. You need to add something to stand out. Now, what that something is and what the best dollar spend, you need to go look at what are your competitors doing and you need to see that. So for us diving in deeper, here's another strategy we do. We'll go look at the top 10 top 20 performing properties. Let's say we're buying a three, two, we're going to go look at what are the top 10, top 20 performing three twos? What do they all have in common? And sometimes that commonality list is five things. Sometimes it's 10 things at minimum. We're going to add those five things or 10 things to our listing. Then we're going to get creative and say, okay, what's one or two new things we can add that none of these guys have. And so for us, that's just an easy, you know, blueprint to just copy, paste, repeat 
copy, paste, repeat. So yeah. if you are eyeing a two-bedroom home or a three-bedroom home or a four-bedroom home in an area, go look at Rabu, go look at AirDNA, go do an a incognito search on Airbnb, go look at the top performing properties in your area that are of similar size and similar location, and go just look at all the amenities they have and write those down. And then that's how we build a commonality list. So if I know that 80% of the top performing properties have a hot tub, guess what? I need a hot tub at minimum. If I only find that 10% have a hot tub, well, that tells me I don't need to spend seven, eight grand on a hot tub because it's clearly not dictating revenue. So that's another way to save money is, oh, I'm not overspending on something that I think I need because the data will tell you what you do in fact need or don't need. Those are things you need to look at when evaluating how to stand out. And then you're not affected by this Airbnb bus because you can see the quarterly updates from Airbnb VRBO that they put out. Bookings are up, demand is up, travel is up. So there's no slowdown. Yes, there's more inventory. So if you have a below average product with no differentiating, yes, you will get crushed. But if yeah. you have something valuable, you will get booked and at a premium rate. Yeah, I mean, we've published data on kind of showing the demand is up. AirDNA has published data showing that short-term rental demand is up, but likewise, supply is up. So really, to kind of the, the most important thing here is what you was exactly what you're alluding to, Taylor, is you need to create appreciation. You need to attract that that demand your way so that guests book properties and stay at your property. Uh, and there's easy ways to win if you do exactly what you just said. Makes all the sense in the world. Um, I know we have some questions that we need to answer. A couple more questions from my end, and then we'll jump over to those. So if you guys have any questions, please feel free to send them in via the chat. There's already, I'm seeing a couple, almost a dozen compiled. Please send us a few more. A um, couple of questions we got. One of those was an off, uh, a, a, a question also from, from an attendee here today. I know we've sent you guys some deals that you've closed on, but what are some other ways that you typically find investments? Are they on-market on investments, off-market investments? What are some of the strategies that you guys undertake to, to find assets to buy? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty fortunate because of how much data we take in. 98, 99% of everything we've bought is we're right off Zillow. Um, we've got a couple off-markets that have come our way. Um, but for those that don't have as much access, there is other creative ways, you know, other investors I talk to who maybe don't have as much data access as we do or don't consume it. Um, they're doing things like talking to wholesalers or joining Facebook groups. Um, that's a great way to look at getting properties. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, look at the sub two, you know, whole thing. Um, so I know some people who are buying short-term rentals via sub two, you can inherit a three or 4% interest rate. Again, that's its own animal. Um, seller finance, you know, is another opportunity. Um, direct mailers, off-market, you know, cold calling. All those things are strategies that can work. They're just not strategies we've implemented today. Um, if, you know, the data shows us that we're not able to find enough, you know, properties to buy right off Zillow, then we will start adding those other strategies, whether it's more wholesalers, more direct mail, more cold calling. We will add those elements into our acquisition strategy as we need them today. We just consume more markets, more data, and continue to buy uh, you know, right off Zillow. Yeah, uh, I 100% uh, agree with that statement. Zillow is a great, great option. We actually launched a tool a few weeks back, a Chrome plugin uh, that if you're on uh, Zillow looking for a property there, you have a before plugin, you just click a button and it'll take you, give you the estimate. So that's an easy way to do it. Um, we also have emails that we send out on a weekly basis for those looking for a, for investment property. So Rabu is a great choice, but as always, there's ways to be creative uh, and utilize what's out there in, in, in social, uh, Twitter, Facebook, as you said, there's a lot of ways to do so. Um, but Zillow is always kind of the easy one to get started with, at least for exploring. 
Before I jump over to the to the questions from the guests, um, last question from my end. Looking back at your experience now, what are some of the top things you wish you would have known when you were first starting out? Uh, buy, buy the premium product if I could afford it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would have loved to have buy the, bought the Mountain View cabin in the Smokies uh, in, in early 2020, uh, getting started. But um, no, what I wish I'd known was having the ability to go find what the top performing properties are, the amenities um, you know, I did invest early on with a little bit of emotion and not as much data as I do today. Um, obviously it worked out. I was pretty fortunate. My, my emotion was tied to a general thesis. Um, you know, we were buying in mountain towns and as a Floridian, the Southeast mountains, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, we always visited as kids. So to me, I just started with, where did I travel? Where did my parents take me? Yep. Because if it worked in the seventies, eighties, nineties, guess what? It's probably going to work today too. So that's where I started. And, you know, being a Florida boy, I've always been bullish on the Southeast mountains. Everything is flat and hot here. So escaping to Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee was always something we did. And I figured that's probably a thesis that's still around today. So I didn't have as much data back then when I made that first purchase getting into the space. Um, so for me, I would have loved to have used tab uh, you know, tools like, you know, Rabu and AirDNA and everything else out there to make a way better decision. And I probably could have extracted more ROI on that first property. Um, that first one's still cash flow positive, still a great, a, a great buy um, looking back, but it could have been 2X or 3X had I had, you know, the good data access that I do today. Yeah, makes complete sense. Um I, I always kind of went by the same philosophy, especially when we were, we were first building out our rentals, our Airbnbs when we started back in 2018. It's like you wanted to set up the place in a way that you, if you were to travel, you would enjoy it and you have a good time and you choose this property or any other property. It's always kind of an easy, that feeling rule to have as well when it comes to short-term rental investing. Um, let's jump over some of the questions that we had from, from the uh, attendees. The first one um, I like uh, is, is a, uh, this attendee said, I feel like the hardest step is going from zero to one. Can you speak to the anxiety or having some funds and wanting to jump in while also dealing with the fear of having an STR that fails? Well, what do you think about that, Taylor? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, with, with short-term rentals, I, I always, uh, the quote I use is, uh, it's kind of like tattoos. It's it's a mile to the first tattoo. And then once you get in, it's an inch to the second. Um, mm -hmm. So like I guess it, it was a big buildup before we got our first one. And then I got super addicted and obviously try to go after our second one as quick as possible. Um, like I said, you want to know enough about the space via underwriting, via making sure you're good on regulation, making sure you understand operations, whether you're going to self-manage or hire a property manager, you want to have that lined up up front. But assuming you've taken all those, you know, those steps, you know, you, you should, you know, at least be breaking even, you know, maybe turn a small profit, but, you know, you do need to write offers. I always tell people is we wrote five offers before we got our first one accepted. Again, different marketplace uh, back then than it is today, different than 2021, different than 2022, but you need to go write offers. And, you know, even if you get something accepted and then you're like, oh my gosh, I, I'm maybe not sure about this anymore. You can always, you know, pull out, you know, right there um, and not have, you know, huge financial repercussions because uh, you're during your inspection or due diligence period. So those are things that, that I would say is go start writing offers. Um, if you wait and are just going to write one offer a year, it's going to be tough. If you find stuff that you think works, even if you think it's an outside chance, go write the offer. And I would say as somebody who is actively buying in today's market, I've looked at things and I'm like, man, I don't like this deal at, at 600 grand. I like it at 550. I don't think they're going to take it. And I'll throw like a 540 offer out 
And then they counter at 550 and we accept it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So you really don't know. And the, the quote my dad always said as a, as a washed up baseball guy, like I said, it's better to strike out swinging than it is to strike out looking. And that's because you'll never know if you never got the bat off your shoulder, you never know if you were going to get a base hit. And so in today's environment where, you know, again, people aren't paying 100, 200 grand over ask, waiving all inspections, it's a different marketplace than 2021, go take a stab at it. Worst case, they don't accept it and maybe they get offended. Who cares? It doesn't matter. So um, if your numbers are there, go start writing offers and get practice. Yeah, so true. And if you, if you want to kind of get your hands uh, dirty on the operation side, if you're going away for a weekend uh, somewhere from your personal home, list that on Airbnb and see what the experience is like, see what it's like to, to, to actually create a listing, see what it's like to communicate with guests. Um, it's a, your private home, as long as, you know, obviously the municipalities allow it um, or your apartment building allows it, whatever your situation is, try that out, see what it feels like, uh, and then, and then go, go from there. It's a good way, easy way to kind of test out and see if this is something that you'd be interested in. Um, next question I have actually came from a Twitter user prior to this call, uh, prior to this podcast. Where do you see the STR industry short-term rentals um, uh, evolve or how do you see the short-term rental industry evolve over the next three to five years based on the current market conditions, the interest rates, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at this like any other emerging real estate asset class, whether it's multifamily, self-storage, industrial, office, retail, et cetera, is as lending becomes more mainstream, that will always bring in larger institutional players. So like anything, if lending is more available, lending is more opportunistic, then you know, the asset class will there. Now that'll come with bigger players. Naturally, margins might get squeezed. You'll have to get creative uh, to find ways to make money. But that's just the same as if you look at any other asset class like multifamily or like self-storage was in the 90s, early 2000s before, you know, the internet blew up. Um, you know, there was insane spreads and now it's compressed down as it became more mainstream. So, you know, I just see more maturity in the asset class. And again, going back to the baseball reference, I feel like we're in the second or third inning right now. Yeah. Um, so we're still early. Is it the ground floor? No. Was this the, the first pitch? Absolutely not. Um, but we are still early and there is still great opportunity out there. And I think as soon as lending um, becomes more mature, that's when you're going to start to really see the asset class take off. It's already started the last two years. You can see more and more lenders with the DSCR products, um, lenders that are using short-term rental rent uh, versus long-term rental rent. Um, so there is that is slow and steady, but over the next three to five years, I see a huge explosion of growth and maturity in the asset class as a whole. Yeah, I, I agree. A couple of things that are kind of on my mind when it comes to this, I think we're in the process of seeing the asset class become more professionalized. We've actually two professionals running it, not just somebody throwing an Airbnb up on, you know, a, a property up on Airbnb. So groups like yourself with what you're building a tech investor with a high quality portfolio, I think those types of assets are going to continue succeeding no matter what the market environment is. And I do believe we're going to see some return compression, some ROI compression because of this kind of growth in, in supply. Uh, but it's still going to be a really high performing asset class and we could perform better than LTRs than most other asset classes. So you know, some of the returns people are seeing in the late 2000, you know, late 2020 and 2021, uh, it's unlikely to see those type of returns in the future, uh, but there's still really great returns to be made in short-term rentals. They're just going to be compressed some, but that's just normal. That's what happens with any asset classes. It becomes institutionalized and, and professionalized. 
Um, we had a couple of tech investor specific questions that I wanted to to run through here as well. So um, can you share uh, a little bit about how you guys uh, operate the properties? Do you have local operators or do you operate each property yourself? So we do operate um, our property fully remote. What we'll do is we'll systemize everything on the back end. So when it comes to systemizing, that means we want everything standardized. So when a property gets cleaned in Arizona, we want it with the same level of expectations as it is in Florida. Now, who's physically cleaning are two totally different people naturally, but the checklist, the expectations, the reporting, the, hey, this is broken, those processes we want to streamline as much as possible. That allows us to scale um, a proper uh, a portfolio, you know, fully remote across the U.S. So for us, we've built out SOPs. They've been tweaked, changed, edited, and they continue to, um, you know, be changed over time as we learn. But for us, we're going to partner with local um, boots on the ground. They're going to operate using our tech, um, our SOPs, and that way we can standardize everything as much as possible so that we have the same way for you know, maintenance, for cleaning, for operations, we're going to run those with the same thing. So the great news is all the tech that has entered this space allows you to grow and scale a portfolio of our size fully remote across the U.S. Um, you know, you've got to nail down your, your SOPs for sure, uh, which again, how we were a year and a half ago versus today is completely different. But through trial and error, we've continued to refine and we'll continue to make changes as we go just so we can continue to scale and repeat that process over and over again. Yeah, that's that's how we operate you know, 300 plus properties that we operate. It's all remote, but you have to, that's important, having the SOPs and then making sure you find reliable boots on the ground, vendors, cleaners, maintenance team members to clean uh, and take care of the properties on the ground is incredibly important. Uh, but it makes complete sense that you guys are controlling that whole experience. You're buying the properties and you are managing it to give it the, the tech vester brand and feel uh, and to optimize for ROI. Makes complete sense. Uh, another question related to TechVestor, do you guys service Canada? Um, as far as buying, no, we're currently only buying in the US. Do we, uh, have we looked uh, externally? Yes, um, you know, might be a year and a half to two years away. I do see international expansion. As far as international investors, yes, we do have opportunities for international investors. Uh, feel free to reach out to one of our team members on the website. Um, they can take those calls and detail questions. But yes, we do have international investors who um, can invest with us. Um, as far as buying, though, no, we're strictly in the U.S. today. We do still feel there's plenty of opportunity. If that opportunity runs dry and we do need to look elsewhere, um, you know, we'll definitely do that. And we've already started taking those, you know, options. We've looked at parts of Europe. Uh, we've looked at the Caribbean, um, and we're kicking the tires on some options. You know, again couple of years out, but we do see an opportunity to, you know, grow and scale internationally as we continue to build our portfolio. Yeah. Uh, makes complete sense. It's bound to happen. If you're doing something well, people are going to want it elsewhere. Um, they've been there. Uh, so congrats on that, on that demand. That's great. A um, couple of uh, other general questions. And I know it's almost, it's five till the one on the East coast. So we only have a couple of minutes here. Um, the first question I had here was about, uh, it's a specific use case, which I think is interesting. Uh, so one attendee asked, if my interior was just fully renovated, but the exterior will be next summer, am I risking my ability to rent for the future? I guess the question is, should they wait until the exterior is fully renovated? Um, or can they go ahead and rent out with their interior yeah. just being fully <laughs> renovated? Yeah, it's a classic debate. Uh, do you go rent versus ready or ready versus rent? Meaning, do you wait to list it until everything's perfect? Or do you rent with maybe some inherent flaws? Uh, we're, we're always a rent before ready mindset. 
um, you know, again, it, it, it will depend on your local market. Um, if the outside's not that nice, um, you know, again, you don't have to put 80 photos of the exterior. You can hide one or two photos. You can't not show it um, and maybe tuck those down at the last couple photos. If you have a really good interior, feature it and show it. Um, and then you can hide your flaws down in those last three or four photos. Um, when you do get the exterior done, if it's something you feel is value to show off, then go get your property reshot and add in those more exterior photos to blend them all together. Yeah, uh, as long as the exterior is safe and it's not causing uh, you know any kind of issues for people, I think you should be good to go there. Um, also, one strategy is you can have, uh, if it does not perform and you get some bad reviews, you can potentially relist it under a new listing, a new account in the future once it is fully ready. But if there's opportunities to make some money now and you're doing it the right way and safe way, then it's probably worth a shot. Um, and then one more question here. Uh, where do you source your data on travel trends? Um, yeah, so a lot of it is, um, you know, again, so there's Google searching. Um, you know, what's really cool is um, a tool like AirDNA. They have like a rental demand, which is a mixture of a couple different things. So you can obviously pick up on those trends. Um, I know Rabu's putting out some tools as well. So that's why we try to consume as many different tools as possible to see um, you know, you can also just do a quick search of annual visitor count. So, you know, if, if you're investing near national parks, like the Smokies or, you know, like Joshua Tree, you can see annual visitation. The government puts those out. The same thing is if you're going to invest in, you know, metropolitan Detroit or Cincinnati or something like that, they talk about visitation numbers on the government website. So you can search for those visitors and look for trends. Are they growing five, 10% a year? Or was it peak in 2021 and then it's been, you know, down ever since? Well, you want to take that into account. So there's tons of different ways, but, you know, definitely, um, you know, Google, look at travel trends, look at visitation numbers, um, you know, just stay afloat. And then as well as use tools like AirDNA and Rabu that are also putting out demand, um, you know, factors and formulas to consume. Awesome. And then last question. Um, this is a debatable the, the question that uh, we've seen debated all over Twitter, all over the place, really. Uh, direct booking versus OTAs. Do you have a preference? Do you think that there's a world where Airbnb doesn't drive most of your bookings in the future? Or do you expect you know OTAs, online travel agencies like Airbnb to continue being the, the main source for even techvesters? You guys build a large kind of almost branded portfolio. Yeah, you, you, you and I had a great discussion on this, um, you know, pop, uh, contrary to popular belief, um, we are not big on direct bookings right now. I'm not saying we won't be in the future, but uh, people think it's just very easy uh, to just, oh, yeah, just set up a direct booking site. I'm like, great. How are people going to find you? So, again, I always talk about let's put ourselves in the shoes of the consumer. If I'm a consumer and I'm going to Blue Ridge, am I going to go to Google and type cabin for rent Blue Ridge? Or am I going to open Airbnb and then type in the word Blue Ridge and then boom, the cabins? Airbnb, VRBO, you know, when you look at Amazon, all these, all these companies that are selling direct to consumer on Amazon, yeah, they have their own website, but guess what happens? You're trying to change consumer behavior. So let's, let's call a spade a spade by setting up direct bookings. You are trying to change consumer behavior. Airbnb, VRBO, Amazon, they've all spent billions of dollars. And in return, they take 3% or in, or in VRBO's case, 8% of your revenue in exchange. That's just your marketing fee really is what that is. Now, yes, can you set up direct booking opportunities, cut out the 14% fee to the consumer, take it yourself, split it with the customer? Yes, but it is not the easiest thing in the world. So for us, we just try to stay very afloat on what are the rules. I see a lot of people who violate the rules and they're like, oh, don't you risk getting banned on Airbnb? 
I'm like, no, I don't, I don't risk it because I don't play in the gray area. I see a lot on the, on the Facebook groups, people like, Hey, you know, I did this and then I got banned. Do you guys know why? And I'm like, yeah, read the rules of operation. Like you're on their platform. It's a private entity and you flirted with the gray area. You know, for us, we're just going to stay very disciplined and follow the rules and execute. You can try to cheat and hedge and play in the gray area, and then you risk getting deplatformed. That's your own opportunity if you want to play in that space. You know, you, you take on insurance risk. You take on, you know, validating customer IDs. You take on so many other things with direct bookings that people do not think about, you know, when it comes to that. When you take about uh, collecting money up front versus waiting and having somebody else escrow your money you know, via Airbnb or VRBO. So there's a lot into it. It's a very nuanced. I, I love having this discussion. I love to have it in further detail. Um, we will add in more direct bookings. We're probably sub 5% right now. Um, but I don't know if it's ever going to be north of 51%. Um, you know, it might, I can't predict three, five years from now, but over the next 12 months, you know, again, we will continue to operate, you know, on the OTAs, you know, um, have the best design, you know, operate the best within those rules you know, but again, they are there to serve you. Um, they die without you um, operating and growing and scaling. So for us, we're going to continue to do that. Yeah, we're 100% on the same page. Um, we actually, at peak, had uh, direct bookings hit 25% for us, but that was only because it was COVID and we were trying to fill empty properties after, you know, people stopped traveling with, with weekly and monthly tenants. And at that point, it was only 25%. Since then, we're still 95%. OTAs, Airbnbs, uh, it's impossible to compete against them as hard as it is to kind of get over the fact that you can't get your brand across, you can't fully kind of talk about the amenities that you have on OTAs, the review counts and your reviews there mean 10x what they would on any kind of direct booking website. So uh, on the same page there. Well, um, I know we're at time here, a little bit a minute over. Taylor, thanks for joining us today. Everyone, thanks for joining us uh, on, on this podcast Hopefully you learned something that can help you along your way in your short-term rental journey. As always, we encourage you to use all our free tools that are blue.com to build your portfolio. If you want to learn more about Taylor or TechMaster, be sure to follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Mr. Jones STRs. You can also find him on LinkedIn. Uh, also make sure to check out techvester.com, T-E-C-H-V-E-S-T-O-R. Uh, TechVestor is actually a partner of our booth. So be on the lookout from us in a couple of weeks with an email uh, that talks more about TechVestor and how you can participate in that program. I think they're doing some great things. And uh, as always, we'll share this podcast with all your attendees after today, and then we'll make it available on all your favorite podcast channels as well. So thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Taylor, thank you again for being on and uh, cheers, everyone. Thank you.